to another show of Geopolitics Decanted. It is Sunday, June 5th. We're now in the fourth month of the war. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Tonight, I'm once again joined by Michael Kaufman, an expert on the Russian military and a research program director in the Russia Studies Program at the Center for Naval Analysis. And I'm very excited to have back with us Rob Lee, who is a senior fellow at the Eurasia Program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and who is close, uh, closely watching this war, probably as close as anyone else. So let's get started. And Rob, maybe we can start with you. What is this current sit rep on the fight in the Donbass? The Russians have made a lot of progress in recent weeks um, since they've refoc- refocused their efforts on the fi- fight for the Donbass. Where do things stand now? Um, they entered the city of Severodonetsk, the, the largest city in the Donbass. The Ukrainians are claiming that they're uh, being able to retake some of the territory. What are you seeing on the ground? So it's, it's a little hard to say from the outside. Um, I think I think it's some of the conflict is now getting a little harder to kind of look at um, if you're not there, just because it's, it's difficult to make a strong assessment without knowing the strength of the Ukrainian and Russian forces that are fighting right now. Um, so in, in Severodonetsk, you know, it, it appeared Russia pushed in and took a good amount of the city a few days ago. They posted a number of videos of, of uh, soldiers and Rosguardia troops in the city center. And then well, I think today and yesterday, I think Ukrainian officials have been saying that they, they pushed back and they were able to take back some of the city. From my vantage point, hard to say what, what the actual situation is. And, and again, it's, you know, it's urban warfare. So it always can, can become a difficult thing if, if the side that knows the city better has, a, has an advantage. And of course, it's, you know, the, the big question for me in terms of fighting in Donbass is how many forces, how much force is Ukraine committing to the fight? So you know it's a priority for Russia. We know Russia really needs to take these areas for, for their kind of their goals right now. For Ukraine, it's a big question of, you know, strategically, they don't have to hold, you know, several nests. They, they, can, they can fall back. And it's easier if they fall back to hold certain areas because they don't have a salient that's, that's more um, kind of vulnerable. And so it becomes a question of, you know, how, how much to what extent is Ukraine reinforcing the front lines there? Are they really rotating forces? Are they, are they committing significant force? If you do that, there's a risk that it gets cut off. But at the same time, if you commit enough force, maybe that means you can hold the area, so on. So it's, you know, from my view, it's, it's hard to say exactly, um, you know, where it's going to go from here. One, one thing that is notable is that mobilized reserves are playing a bigger role. And so you're seeing that in Hassan, you're seeing that elsewhere, where I think mobilized units are playing a bigger role on both sides. Um, the issue is that you can, you can raise numbers by doing that, but mobilized units, they can defend okay. It's really hard to train to attack very well. And so you're not, you can't really expect mobilized units that aren't very well trained or equipped to really do offensive operations that effectively. And so we're seeing right now in Donbass a, a, a significant concentration of the Russian forces that, that can conduct offensive operations. You know, the most units they have available, like naval infantry units, VDV, um, Wagner, some other kind of the, the better separatist units. But elsewhere, they can't really do that to the same, same degree because they don't have the same kind of talent and they, they, they took a, too much attrition in the beginning to really conduct large-scale offensive operations across the entire front. And so, you know, what, you know where, where is the fight in Donbass going to go? I don't really have a great idea. Um, it's, it's, it's really hard to say. It's hard to say whether or not Ukraine is going to try to, you know, hold out the positions no matter what. They may pull back to, to, you know, to the river to defend there. They may look and say there, there's better positions to, to, to defend from for the, for the long term. Hard to say what they're going to do. Um, but clearly, you know, Russia's been, been focused on Donbass now for – what, about a month and a half, you know, they, they've made some gains. They, they've certainly achieved some, some successes, but, you know, it's tactical successes. And the big question is how many, how many casualties do they sustain doing so? 
Um, you know, Zelensky a day said that Ukraine sustained some like 60 to 100 uh, KA a day and hundreds of, of wound in action. You know, it, it's a big question which side is sustaining heavier casualties because that, that's going to determine, you know, what happens in the future. Um, you know, which side has has greater manpower to rely on as this war goes in, in you know, into the fourth or fifth month. And, you know, who can kind of rely on that more? So it's 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 a big question. I don't have a great answer for you. Um, I think it's really hard to kind of make a prediction of which side is taking heavier casualties or or, you know, is better off kind of position for that. Um, but, you know, again, Ukraine is getting newer weapons. I think a lot of these, the HIMARS or MLS systems, as they, when they receive them, if they get enough of them, if they get enough munitions, you know, that can play a key role, especially if the Russian offensive starts to, to, to get the grind down due to casualties. So that's something to look for. So, so Mike, I, I, and Rob just alluded to this, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners are asking this question. The United States uh, just appropriated $40 billion in aid. Uh, over half of that is, is military aid. You've got MLRS systems, multiple launch rocket systems that Congress is now going to be, or the administration is now going to be sending into the fight, including the HIMARS. Uh, you've got tanks coming in from Poland, from Germany, and uh, artillery systems and the like. Um, do you think it's going to come in in time to make a difference? Uh, obviously, there'll be huge logistical issues in trying to get it into this fight for the Donbass. Uh, what, what are you seeing in terms of the applicability of, of this enormous amount of uh, equipment that's now flooding into Ukraine? I think it really depends on how long this current phase of the war drags out. You know, and that's very hard to tell right now. My best sense is that uh, it'll take a while to train up to use systems like the HIMARS. Some of the other systems have already been trickling in into the battlefield. Everybody has seen M777s employed. Uh, loitering munitions like switchblades to a limited extent, they will make a difference at the tactical level. I'm not sure they're going to get there in time to make a difference in terms of what happens in this offensive, but that really depends on uh, how long the fighting in this phase continues. Either way, they will make the difference down the line because they're going to first allow Ukraine to switch to uh, systems that use NATO standardized ammunition and ammunitions of really significant differentiator here because Ukraine otherwise would run out of uh, Soviet-type ammo, and then I think in some cases probably had or was close near to it. Second, uh, it would then give Ukraine a fairly capable amount of different types of artillery systems that I think are qualitatively better than the Russian systems in the field, and over time would allow them to win uh, in the artillery exchanges. And that's kind of a tactical conversation, but if you think big picture in many respects this is an artillery war and so in that respect quality and quantity really matters but it will take time for those systems to show up in sufficient quantities with units that can train up to use them and then also rotate right and have a different set of crews that that train up to use them as well sometimes folks think that well you just train one crew but here's what really happens the harder training is on maintaining the system not actually using it uh, and if you're not properly trained on that, you can very easily deploy M777s or HIMARS systems onto the battlefield, and then they'll break down, and they'll break down fairly quick, and you won't have the personnel there necessarily to maintain them. Uh, and, and then, you know, obviously they'll have to probably ship them back and get them fixed somewhere. And then there's the second issue, which is you have equipment that you deploy with crews, but at some point you may rotate those crews off and you need to have more than one, um, more than one set of units that's trained to use that kind of gear. So the long story short is, yes, it will make a difference. 
yes, it means that the long-term trends in the military balance, from my point of view, tend to favor Ukraine. No, that's not a prediction of outcomes. That's just, uh, I think, a fair characterization of, of what's the overarching trend in, the, in this war. But that will, take, that will take time to materialize. But, you know, the interesting thing is that the Ukrainians have said that they launched this counteroffensive in Kherson, I think, about a week ago now. And they don't appear to have made much progress. Uh, they try to shell some Russian positions. The Russians are pretty well dug in. Do you think that's an indication that we should be reading into um, about the ability of the Ukrainians to launch significant counteroffensives against dug-in Russian positions and the territory they've already taken? You know, in general, no. So this uh, counteroffensive in Kherson was a very localized counteroffensive, and it was quite small. Um, it may have appeared very kind of large in, in terms of media, but you know what happens due to the media focus on the conflict is that any event, any counteroffensive starts to gain prominence and starts to build expectations, right? In many respects, uh, that localized counter that localized counteroffensive may uh, set up Ukrainian military in better position for another offensive down the line, possibly relieve pressure. But I personally, looking at it, was never expecting much from it. And yes, it's true that Russian troops in Kherson are now dug in, to the extent you can be. That part west of the river is actually rather difficult to defend. It's fairly open, flat terrain. And it's probably the one area where Ukrainian forces would have overall uh, the greatest relative advantage. But you have to appreciate that the Ukrainian military has also been substantially reinforcing its forces in the Donbass. Part of it's clearly for this counterattack in Severodonetsk. Well, it's unclear what the situation there is immediately in the city. And likely to build a secondary defensive line uh, running down from Bakhmut and south of uh, the Donetsk River. So uh, I think Rob is quite right. You're seeing a lot of reinforcements and likely reserves being employed, but mostly focused on the Donbass, not in the Kherson region. Uh, I wouldn't make I wouldn't make any big judgment calls from what's happening either in that counterattack or even the counterattack right now in Severodonetsk. These are more tactical events than strategic in nature. In many respects, the Ukraine ability to conduct a sustained counteroffensive with Western equipment has yet to be revealed. So I would not prejudge the situation. And um, I would say analytically, it's it would be prudent to be patient because more than likely, eventually this phase of the war uh, will end. And then there could be a substantial operational pause uh, everybody will run off to declare a stalemate or some kind of freezing of the conflict. That's not what will be taking place. And then we might see another set of offensives and real drives taking place uh, later on in the fall. That's just, you know, a guesstimate. Rob, one thing that I noticed um, is that the numbers that the Ukrainians are putting out on Russian casualties, and many people assume that uh, th those numbers may be inflated, but in terms of tread lines, they seem to have been going down over the last few weeks, both in terms of personnel that they claim to have killed on the battlefield, as well as the equipment that they've destroyed. Um, what, if anything, should we be reading into that? Is that an indication that the Russians perhaps are holding back further and pummeling the, the cities and villages in the Donbass with artillery and causing huge casualties on the Ukrainian side, but, but are not really doing, um, uh, you know, um, uh, the reconnaissance, the advanced reconnaissance and uh, sending in armor like we saw them doing in the first phase of the war. Um, what are your thoughts on that? 
So I think there's two things. One is, um, you know, the focus on the war continues like, as it should. But, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that the, the, the fighting is concentrated in a very kind of small area right now. Right in the beginning of the war, you had fighting in Kiev, you had fighting in Chernihiv, in Kherson, all over the place. And in many cases, you know, Russian forces in the first two weeks, they did these, this mass advance without combined arms, without proper support. And they took a lot of casualties, a lot of losses as a result. Um, it was just a very terrible plan. What, they, what they've done, so they, they've retrenched since then. Because the fighting now is focused so much at Donbass, well, you're, you're seeing fewer units being used. You're seeing fewer units getting put at, at risk. Um, you're seeing fewer big mistakes in the Russian forces. You know, that there was that the river crossing issue about a month ago. But since then, you know, it isn't clear there have been any kind of really disastrous kind of events for the Russian military. I personally think they've, they've made some, uh, uh, they've adapted. They've kind of, they've, they've started making some better decisions. Um, and by the way, r- river crossings are hard for anyone, right? Particularly if you assume that they may be getting, uh, Ukrainians may be getting help on the intelligence front, perhaps from, from the West. Yeah. So, so, I mean, river crossings, one, it's, it's, you know, it, it's always difficult. It's, it takes time and it's always somewhere where the, the opposing side is going to focus. Right. And so, you know, no doubt about it, the Ukrainians, knew the good uh, you know, uh, crossing points. They probably had them pre-registered for artillery. They probably had UAVs looking there. Only they had any indication that something was happening in those areas, you know, they're, they're, they're ready to, to, to use a, an artillery fire mission. So that, it, 100% there's, that's always going to be tough, right? And I, I don't know the last time the U.S. military has done a river crossing under fire like that. So it's you know, a legitimate thing to think about. But you know, they, they, they did some, make some mistakes in terms of bunching up. They, they, they had too many units kind of near that river put themselves at greater risk from artillery fire than they needed to be. Um, but since then, you know, they've, they've, I think they've been doing a better job. So we talked about the casualty rates. You know, one is the war is in a smaller area, right? You're not seeing too much back and forth elsewhere on the front line. You're seeing artillery fire, but, you know, not really huge advances where you have more casualties. Um, and two, you know, we, we talk about you know, a lot of the information we're getting still is from videos and from open source information. Well, there's more open source information available during the, the, the first few weeks of the war, the month of war, than we're seeing in Donbass because there's fewer, you know, a lot of cases of population there, fewer videos coming out, so on. And of course, you know, we're not seeing as much back and forth on the front lines where a lot of vehicles are being captured. And you kind of make, you can kind of make uh, estimates of, okay, Russia maybe lost this many soldiers because we saw this many destroyed BMPs. We're not seeing as much because, you know, Ukrainians are recovering as many damaged vehicles. They may be damaging them. They may be destroying them. But, it's, it's you know, we're getting the vantage point from maybe a few kilometers away from UAV, harder to kind of make that assessment. So um, I, I certainly think Russia's taking fewer casualties now than they were before. Um, I think, you know, they, they've leaders there, they, you know, they're in the third month of the war. These guys now have combat experience. They, they, they have a better idea of what they're doing. They're also probably better about not sticking their necks out too much because they know what happens. You know, they know that Ukrainian military is, is quite capable and, and will punish them if they make those mistakes. So I think that's, you know, a contributing factor. And look, you know, Russian military took, took in heavy casualties. They took a lot of heavy casualties in the beginning of the war, and that meant they couldn't sustain as many heavy casualties later on, and they've, they've adjusted, I think, their, their, um, their offensive accordingly. Mike, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with Rob. What I would add is that um, early on in the second phase, they clearly reorganized and they began looking much more like an actual general staff-run military operation, but obviously with a tremendous amount of deficits, and they'd lost so much manpower and material in the first phase that I think it was quite difficult for them to to cobble those together. Uh, And they were kind of stitching together fragments of battalions into into units, and at that point it was obvious that whatever we were calling battalion tactical groups told us nothing about actual end strength was sort of a meaningless number at that point of BTGs in the fight. From my point of view, the Russian military has had an advantage in fires. They began using them much more effectively because 
around the war, it was clear they were struggling and using the one thing that the Russian military should be good at, which is fires and coordinating fires and maneuver. And they couldn't suppress Ukrainian artillery. That was very clear. Ukraine was actually doing very well in the artillery battle in the first phase of the war. It was quite impressive. Um, and the Russian military was first feeding force a bit piecemeal into this offensive from a zoom. They have not, for, for most of it, have had much of an advantage in terms of uh, actual ground forces in the fight, right? And so obviously very hard to advance in a ground campaign if you don't have substantial military advantage over Ukrainian units. But I get the sense, right? And I don't have, you know, as Rob said, there's actually less open source uh, data available now. So there's even less fidelity on what's going on. But I get the distinct sense that in the last month, the Russian force presence has increased in this northern part of the Donbass, uh, running from, you know, Izum to Severodonetsk and uh, maybe down to Papasna. And that that may have been that may be a local advantage of forces that they've been able to achieve. That's pretty clear. Do you think that's forces they brought in from the Mariupol fight from the south? So, uh, yeah, they they clearly freed up forces from Mariupol. But no, I actually think that um, if you recall in the past, we've been talking about Russian attempts at sort of behind the scenes shadow mobilization, hiring contract servicemen to replace their losses and trying to rotate units back. If you remember, they had uh, more than 20 BTGs that were taken out of uh, uh, Ukraine into Belarus and that weren't actually rotated to this line. So they've clearly stitched some units together. It looks like they've mobilized some folks from Donetsk and Lugansk and looks like behind the scenes they've been trying to replace losses. So they've improved somewhat the correlation of forces there. These are kind of measures to to uh, increase uh, the sustainability of the Russian war for essentially their ability to drag it out. But my general sense is that, yes, they have a local uh, advantage in terms of the military balance in the Donbass, maybe not an overall force advantage, but, you know, overall forces on spreadsheets is not what fights. Yep. Um, and the casualties are quite lower. And the Ukrainian casualties, as Rob said, and as Zelensky said, and I've heard this from... Uh, the Ukrainian Minister of Defense and others are quite high. Those casualties of 60 to 100K per day, maybe they said something like 500 wounded per day. I just want to be frank, these are not sustainable casualties in, in this phase. Like, we don't know uh, what the Russian casualties are, but... This and is presumably, of... presumably these are highly trained units, right? Usually in the Donbass, they've had people that have been in this fight for a very long time, since 2014 in some cases, right? So these are not reservists that they just threw in that they've never seen a, you know, a, a gun before. Yeah, but that's kind of everyone. I mean, the units being thrown into Severodonetsk in some ways, everyone, you can see that the foreign legion units are fighting there too, from what it looks like. And it's clearly a mix. Russians also have been using reservists. That's when you saw the T-62s get yanked out of storage. They're for reservist units. And they had reservists on the line in uh, Zaporizhia, and they've also probably had some in Kherson that they've been using to supplement the forces. These are units from the BARS uh, reservist system. Uh, Rob, you're welcome to, to chime in and add anything on that if you feel like. And you can see Russian military is yanking T-80BVs out of storage. And that was the first sign I was looking for um, that they were going to need to replace all the tanks they'd lost. And the tanks they're likely to have a lot of in warehouse storage are T-80BVs. And sure enough, they started to appear. So you can see both sides are now reaching into reserve force potential. So does does this mean does this mean that they don't have any significant numbers of advanced tanks left that they have to go back to 40, 50 year old equipment now? 
No, I mean, what's an advanced tank? Like a T-80U versus a T-80BVM versus a T-80BV? I mean, these are... Um, or like the T-90s, right? A T-90A is uh, like 17th variation of T-72. These are all um, modernization variants of same type late Soviet generation tanks. So T-80BV is a step down somewhat in technological level from what they've been fighting with earlier, but actually fairly comparable to T-72B1 in many ways. It's actually not a... These tanks are not substantially less advanced, to be clear. And the T-62s, that's an interesting conversation. They have thousands of them, and it was clear starting in 2018 that they were going to try to create reservist units with T-62s. Make of that what you will. Uh, But long story short, yeah, what it tells us is that the Russian military has lost a good deal of its best tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. It's lost a good deal of its best infantry. And it's lost probably a good deal of its better commanders. And by commanders, I don't mean generals. I mean regimental battalion commanders. I'm, I usually think those tend to matter a lot more. That's my own personal bias. Usually in the room when I say that, the generals tend to bristle and uh, the majors and, uh, and captains start giggling. But... but um, that's that's my sense of it because uh, the the unit, the unit commanders tend to have much more significant impact. So, Rob, one other thing that I'm seeing just from open source videos that, that um, are coming out is that the Russians are using close air support seemingly on a on a much more um, extensive basis than they um, were in the first phase of the war. And you're sort of hearing some anecdotal things coming out of, from the Ukrainian side about the just awful levels of air bombardment that they're under. Are you seeing that as well? And what do you make of that? Because obviously, traditionally, we've talked about how bad Russians are at close air support. Are they getting better at it? Um, And um, are they they using it more from what you're seeing? Yeah, so, you know, one of the problems for Ukraine in in the Donbass, the area where they're at, um, because the fighting is a salient, they can't push a lot of their longer range air defense systems into that salient or else it can get targeted by artillery. And so, you know, right, and over that, in the area, you know, Russia is flooding it with UAVs. <clears throat> they can hit a lot of it with artillery. Um, and so the, the big kind of you know, issue for Ukraine is, do they, do they push in longer range, multi-launch rocket systems, S-300 systems, more cable systems that are more valuable, but are important to kind of provide that coverage? And I, and, and I think one of the reasons why Russia, you know, I, I think you're right. I think Russian aviation has played a big role. And part of it is because in, in the southern Nest area, on the eastern area that, um, Ukraine doesn't have the same kind of air defense coverage they do elsewhere along the front because they don't have S-200s there. They probably don't have Bukin ones I think they have some OSAs. Mostly it's man pads. <clears throat> and so you know, that's still a threat for helicopters. You know, they're still shooting down helicopters. Um, we know Russia's kind of developed, you know, changed their, their, their tactics here. Where they're, in all, many cases, they're, they're firing unguided rockets kind of upwards um, so they can maintain standoff from out of man pads range. Um, but, you know, I think they're getting closer and closer. And they are, you know, one of the things we're hearing from reporters on the ground is it saying that, you know, the forces in, in the area are constantly getting hit by artillery um, or airstrikes. You know, there's a question about how accurate these airstrikes are. But either way, even if you're dropping, you know, unguided 500 uh, round bombs, even if they're nearby, right, it, 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 it has an effect over time. If you, if you keep, if you're on a one-sided um, uh, fight in that regard, right, it's going to have an issue of morale and other things too. And, and again, it's, you know, it, it's impressive Ukrainian forces they keep pulling out because in, in the more exposed parts of Donbass, right, they, they are outguns and they, they are also getting hit by our, um, airstrikes more than they are elsewhere in the, war, in, the, in the war. So, you know, that's certainly a problem. 
Um, you know, is it is it decisive? You know, not clear, right? And and again, one of the issues that <clears throat> even for dropping dumb bombs, um, you know, Su thirty fours, other kind of aircraft, they have to get close enough because they don't have precision guided munitions. They can't, you know, they can't really use as much standoff. It's still a limiting factor, right? It's not it's not something a NATO military would be able to do this much more effective than the Russian air forces. So it's still an issue. But yeah, the, you know, overall, in 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 the because because of, of the nature of the salient. Russia is able to use fires, artillery, multiple launch rocket systems, and aviation more effectively than it would be elsewhere. And that's one of the considerations for Ukraine going forward is, you know, do we keep throwing in more reinforcements to hold this area? In which case, you know, Ukraine may take heavier losses there than they would elsewhere. Um, you know, how important is it to defend that area? Does it make sense to pull back? You know, it's ultimately it's up to Ukrainian general staff because they, they have a better idea of their, their numbers and figures. And, you know, the one thing we talk about kind of um, how this fight might go you know, the Ukrainian general staff and the, general, and the military leadership, they've proven themselves to be very competent in this war. There aren't really many obvious mistakes they've made. And so, you know, they probably know what they're doing. They, they, they know their losses better than I do. They know the Russian situation better than I do. And so, they, you know, they probably have a good idea what they're doing. And, you know, ultimately, they're still holding out. And, you know, it doesn't look like that, that salient is going to collapse anytime soon. Um, but again, it comes down to, you know, how sustainable these losses and how, how, much, how, long, how long can they, can they sustain this for? And one other thing that I'm seeing is some, some of the Ukrainian forces are complaining that um, the Russians are now employing EW, electronic warfare, much more effectively. And is really this is really impeding UAV operations, their ability to do reconnaissance with UAV uh, and targeting. And um, I'm curious, one, Rob, if you're seeing that as well, and two, um, why all of a sudden, you know, four months into this war, have the Russians discovered that they actually have pretty advanced electronic warfare capabilities? Sure. So, yeah, I, I, I think they are using EW more. Um, I think it is more effective. Um, UAVs are playing a, a increasingly important role in Donbass right now, particularly commercial UAVs. So both sides, you know, both sides are crowdfunding these kind of DJI Mavic UAVs or other UAVs. They're sending them to units up front and all these battles are using them. And then- You're seeing the Russians crowdfund that too? Yes. Yeah. The Russians are doing a lot of that. And so in all these battles, you know, these units are, are putting up a lot of UAVs. They're losing these, you know, UAVs. And but, you know, they're playing a really key role in terms of artillery spotting, um, in terms of just ISR, identifying, you know, where the enemy locations are, other things of that nature. It's, they're, they're very, it's a very important role. It's a really you know, one of the kind of I don't think it's much revolutionary from this war, but it is one of the things that is, you know, technologically interesting is the role of commercial UAVs and what, what they're playing. Um, and absolutely, as you're right, you know, EW is playing a role. It's disrupting it. It's not negating that completely. It can't do that, you know, 100%, but it's playing a role. And, and you know, they're also shooting down UAVs. So there was a video that the Ukrainians posted yesterday showing one of the UAVs spotting for artillery rounds that got shot down by a Russian air defense system. You, you can see it happen. Um, but, you know, look, one of the big things to remember is that when we talk about the first stage of this war, um, you know, this was, at least in my view, this war wasn't really a military operation. It was an operation I think was mostly planned by the FSB, by intelligence officers. And I don't think the Russian Ministry of Defense played a key role in conceiving this plan and actually making the plan itself. And so when, when we talk about what Russia did in the beginning of the war, they didn't do combined arms, right? The Russian Air Force kind of hit, hit certain targets, but they didn't really support the ground, ground offensive. Um, the Russian Navy hit targets, but it wasn't really in support of the, the ground maneuver. And the, the ground units, they weren't doing combat arms. They weren't really coordinating with the units. They didn't necessarily bring EW. They didn't bring counter drone systems in a lot of cases. They just made these very quick um, advances without any kind of support, including logistics. And then, you know, when they faced any kind of resistance, 
um, they immediately had had significant issues because they didn't plan on any resistance. And, and basically, it was a plan that you know someone who doesn't have military experience would come up with because any anyone, regardless of what military they served in, you can see obvious problems with this plan, and it didn't make sense. So the beginning of the phase of this war, I think it's important to kind of put that in perspective. This was a very bizarre kind of operation, and not necessarily one the Russian Ministry of Defense, I think, would have planned if they had a key say in this. Whereas we're seeing now, we're seeing combined arms again. We're seeing them bring in artillery, electronic warfare, UAVs, all the kind of things we, we typically see in the Russian military and exercises and in, 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 in previous conflicts they fought in. We're seeing those indications now. And, and again, it, there are still problems because they, they suffered a lot of attrition in the beginning. They can't do things as well as they, they would otherwise. They lost a lot of equipment. But we are seeing them you know, fight basically as we expect the Russian military to fight. And they're having some success when they do that. And so, you know, it's not it's not shocking to see that happen now because the Russian Ministry of Defense is playing a key role in, in actually playing this and running this operation itself. But, you know, there's been a lot of talk of how, you know, Russia, they're not calling this a war, but of course, a special military operation. And maybe the reality is that Putin didn't want to fight a war. He wanted to fight a special <clears throat> military operation because he thought the resistance right. would collapse. Um, Mike, uh, you, you and Rob have just written a terrific piece for War on the Rocks about um, Russian force structure and uh, the, the impact that it's really having in this war um, and how the, the challenges they're facing with material or equipment are, are really more fundamental. Can you talk a little bit about this article and uh, your, your thoughts on, um, uh, on, on the overall position of the Russian military uh, in this fight? Yeah, sure. Um, although I think we've teased the findings of this article quite a bit in the last several weeks while uh, actually writing it. And I think it's, it's been a great collaboration. We finally got it out. It's a it's a lengthy piece on uh, Russian force design and the strategic implications it's had on this war. And in particular, the way the Russian military first even or was basically uh uh, thrown into this operation because the operation when it was launched and I'm calling that an operation for a reason because it does feel like very much that Putin and the set of elites as, as Rob said had planned this assuming that Ukrainians weren't going to fight it didn't this doesn't have the fingerprints of the general staff very much on it as as a real prep as something that was a really prepared war so on force design basically the Russian military was a tiered uh, force structure. It depended on partial mobilization. It was designed to be able to generate uh, a, a an amount of fighting capability, a set number of battalion tactical groups uh, in a short amount of time. And then the rest of the force would have to have raised manning levels. They would have to conduct some kind of partial mobilization. And it was sort of assumed that, that war would be declared in the event of any big con conventional conflict, and they'd be able to do that. All right. What happened was over time, they kept expanding the force structure, all right? But they weren't increasing the amount of the number of personnel in the force. So they were essentially spreading uh, butter over more and more bread. And uh, analysts were debating what was really happening inside the Russian force because they kept creating divisions, but they had no more additional people. So it's clear that they were going down further and further in terms of readiness, uh, in terms of the actual personnel they had on hand across these units. And over time, it became clear that the way they were able to uh, increase the force structure without dramatically increasing the number of contract servicemen in the force, if anything actually looked to me like it had gone down a bit, they wanted to get 405,000, but they kept releasing the same number over and over again. 
And uh, that's a sure sign of people like basically just cheating on numbers and that covering up for what was likely even a modest decline of contract servicemen. But they kept increasing the number of contract staff battalion tactical groups that the force was able to field on paper. And what was really happening is they were reducing the size of the actual BTG in average personnel, maybe down to 600 rather than anything like 750 or 800. That's the first issue. Second, they were highly uneven. So a lot of uh, the divisions and and, uh, brigades, maybe the uh, maneuver formations there could produce one full BTG as the first one, but then the second one might be 350, 400 personal staff and, and so on and so forth. And we're finding a lot of variation in the force structure, I think all the way from 350 to 900 personnel per BTG. In short, they, um, the initial invasion force, I think in terms of maneuver formation is quite smaller than many of us expected. Then uh, looking at it through a host of captured documents, some documents. So, so one, one second. So people kind of assumed that it was in the range of 190,000, right, the initial invasion force. But I think a lot of it was based on counting BTGs and assuming the BTG has 902,000 people. So you're mm-hmm. saying it could be actually quite a bit lower, right? No, no, no. Okay. The, the total amount of personnel involved in the operation, those released by official figures, was around 190,000. It's not the invasion force. The invasion force, which is the actual units that, you know, were going to cross the border, the ground force and supporting elements, was much smaller than that. And it increasingly looks like to me that maybe it was somewhere on the order of 120,000, of which in these 125 to 130 BTGs, battalion tactical groups, that was maybe around 80,000 personnel. So if you look at the size of Ukraine, and if you look at the size of Ukraine's military, and you look at the force that they initially invaded with, um, the problem becomes very apparent very quickly, uh, at least for the Russian military, because the only way this could have really worked, right, in, the, in, the, in what they were attempting, it really is if, if Ukraine just surrendered, right? Um, plus, they were trying to get across three fronts with six different axes of advance. So it's a completely, it's a completely nuts plan. Uh, and I think many have commented on that. Got it. Um, what, one question I have is, around precision-guided munitions. Uh, a lot of people have been predicting that Russia's just about to run out of them, but we're still seeing strikes, uh, including just today in Kiev and other parts of Ukraine, uh, where they're actually targeting grain facilities, uh, grain terminal and a railway car facility that the Ukrainians are using to transport grain and other goods and services in and out of the country. Um, so are the Russians... Do we think that the Russians are improvising? Are they able to manufacture more munitions for these strikes? Um, uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Rob? So we talk of PGMs. Um, you know, one of the things that we're finding out, one, you know, Russia, they're firing a lot of cruise missiles. It's clear that Russia had a large stop. Uh, cruise missiles actually probably bigger than what I expected. Um, the problem is, they're relying heavily on cruise missiles, but they don't have as many kind of shorter range precision guided munitions, right? So um, bombs, missiles from from fighters, aircraft, things of that nature. They don't have as many of those. They have, you know, a certain amount of, of artillery laser guided munitions. Um, but, the, you know, the big weaknesses, yes, they have they have a lot of cruise missiles. They're still using those. Those are useful for hitting infrastructure targets. They're not very useful for hitting military targets that are mobile. Um, and so... You know, one thing to keep in mind when we talk about precision guided munitions, well, they, they can they can hit infrastructure targets, they're going to hit bridges and things of that nature. 
although in many cases the bridges you know sometimes they're being destroyed sometimes they're not being destroyed you know you can you can patch them up rather quickly um but they don't have the kind of precision guiding missions you can use to target you know tanks um you know mobile kind of important kind of uh, military units equipment and that's a really significant issue for the Russian military. And that's one of the things that, that's, that's, you know, a, a kind of key problem for them. And it's a key difference between the U.S. military and the Russian military is that, you know, basically when the U.S. Air Force or, or, or um, you know, U.S. Navy aviation work, they, they use almost, you know, exclusively precision-guided bombs, precision-guided missiles, so on. And they have, you know, much longer ranges. They can, they can drop these from much higher um, altitudes. The Russian military lacks that. And that really is a significant effect on the battlefield. So, um, they clearly have, you know, a lot of cruise missiles. They're still using them. I don't know how many they have left. I don't know what percentage it is, right? I don't know how many they're trying to hold back in case of a conflict with NATO, just to be sure. Um, maybe they're, you know, the running into the reserves. I don't know. But you know, they're, they're, it's important to keep in mind they're, they're using a lot of cruise missiles, but the other kind of precision guided missions they don't have, and that lack is a, is a significant reason why they're not having more success on the battlefield. Mike, what are your thoughts on this latest uh, attempt to target? grain specifically, grain terminals. Uh, this seems to be an attempt to uh, get in a better position for negotiations by making the food situation even worse around the world. Um, obviously, they're, one, they're, they're stealing a lot of Ukrainian grain, uh, committing war crimes in that respect, and now they're targeting grain terminals. Uh, and um, uh, do you think that that's a that's a uh, specific tactic on, on Putin's behalf to uh, try to um, do trade sanctions for, for food. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's clear that they think that that's one of their points of leverage. And they know that there is no easy military solution to the blockade because the blockade isn't principally sort of uh, a ship naval blockade. Uh, they have uh, all sorts of capabilities based on Crimea from that they can employ to blockade access to the port of Odessa. They have submarines, they have mines, coastal defense cruise missiles. They're still pretty well entrenched on Snake Island, by the way. And on top of that, I think what they're signaling is that they can just attack the critical port infrastructure, right, and prevent um, Ukraine from being able to to ship grain that way, that is, go after the actual port infrastructure in Odessa and Nikolaev. And I think they sense that that's one of their biggest areas uh, of leverage. Um, I don't necessarily think it's at all going to work for them. But the issue of the the blockade, the broader economic blockade, and the question of, grade, of grain and its implication for uh, world food supply is being increasingly discussed. And he's being discussed with great intensity. It's one of the major, major issues in this war. Well, let's talk about the blockade because... One thing that I found interesting this week was a comment from uh, one of the Ukrainian senior officials talking about how one of the impacts uh, of, of the um, uh, one of the causes, I should say, of the blockade is actually Ukrainian mines. They've mined a lot of these ports. And he was saying that, um, you know, obviously to, to get the blockade lifted at a minimum, they would have to remove those mines. But they're hesitant to do so because they're still concerned about the Russians moving in. I assume, into the port of Odessa and trying to take the city. I found that very puzzling. That does not seem, seem like a realistic scenario at this stage of the war because they've obviously failed to make any ground progress towards Mykolaiv and then Odessa. Um, they've been repulsed uh, quite um, uh, extensively in that direction. Do you really think that this is still a major threat, that if the Ukrainians demine their ports, uh, that the Russians will move in um, uh, with with their ships, Rob. 
Um, that might be a better question from Mike, actually, as as a naval guy. So I'm I'm gonna pass on that one because I I haven't I haven't thought about that one in depth. Mike, what do you think? Uh, short answer, no. But I think there's a bigger threat that if they remove their minds and Russians will move in and put their minds in, even more advanced minds. So just demining themselves for Ukraine won't won't solve that issue. But no, I don't see any prospect for Russian amphibious operation or Russia taking a dust at this point. I actually was always very dim on that proposition from day one of the war. Uh, and NC is necessarily especially realistic, but it's certainly off the table now from my point of view. All right. Well, Mike, I know how much you love predictions, but I'm going to put you on the spot anyway. No, thanks. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're now in, uh, you know, six or seven weeks now in, into this offensive in Donbass. How much longer do you think it's going to go for, given kind of casualties that both sides are sustaining, the material and, and personnel issues that uh, certainly the Russians um, have? Um, do you think that this is something that can go on for months, weeks? What, what are your thoughts? Well, one of the challenges, how do you know when it's stopped, right? It's, it's easier to see an offensive that's really run out um, in hindsight. And that's why I often quip that major turning points in wars or changes in the phase are easier to see in hindsight than when you're observing it in the midst of the actual operation. And that's why I've been reticent and critical of folks early on saying that, oh, this offense is running out of steam, it's culminating, et cetera, et cetera, because those predictions are not likely to prove true, or at least not likely to prove true on any reasonable timeline. You know, my best guess might be um, months, maybe some point into the summer. I don't think that at this rate of attrition that both sides can sustain operations beyond that. But it could it could uh, come down to incremental advances in a situation where you have small amounts of territory changing hands. So it'd still be pretty dynamic. And that's why I earlier remarked that I'm reticent to hear it called uh, a stalemate, you know, as soon as there's an operational pause. Because I think operational pause is a much more accurate and fair way to describe what will follow even more likely is there'll still be dynamic exchanges of territory and artillery war of attrition as both sides try to look for what their next options are maybe further into the fall. But to be clear, when you talk about major offensives, you're mostly talking about potential for Ukrainian counteroffensives with, with this new uh, weapon supplies that they're getting. The Russians without major mobilizations are not really capable of new offensives, right? So generally, that's true. Um, two things I will say is one thing that our article really discusses are there's the the structural force availability constraints in the Russian military because of the force design, right? And because they assume partial mobilization and because that force dramatically cut the amount of infantry in its units, right? So much so that they were having a very hard time doing combined arms operations or fighting in cities. And a lot of the light infantry that they had suffered some of the heaviest casualties. This is, by the way, more Rob's bailiwick. So if, you, if we have any additional airtime, I suggest giving, giving him some time to talk about it. So that's the biggest issue. Now, the Russian military, as I've said before, is, you know, trying to kick the can down the road. They are attempting piecemeal solutions. At this stage, it looks like what they are doing to, to extend their staying power in this fight is they're trying to create reserve battalions. And they're trying to create them on the basis of sort of the third maneuver battalion that's still left back in the force, not deployed, trying to piece together contract servicemen they've hired, reservists, and the officers for that 3rd Battalion that you typically find in the regiment or brigade. Unclear what its size will be. And trying to bring up the higher-level readiness, the equipment that's still back in base. And just to be clear to folks, they're not out of tanks or IVs. They still have low-readiness equipment that they can repair and try to equip these units with. 
So I think that's currently their best plan. After that, oh, I really don't know um, what, 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 what they're going to do. But uh, uh, suffice it to say, I don't think that the manpower they can come up with is enough to substantially rotate units. Although that's not a very, right now, that's not a very educated position. So we, we will see. So I hope what I said makes sense here. Basically, I don't see a lot of Russian manpower for another offensive after this one. But that is conditional on the current circumstances and the decisions that they make. Yeah, and we've talked in the past about mobilizations, right? That they don't necessarily need to do general mobilization, uh, but if they just go to uh, people that have uh, left the military, let's say in the last five years, to still have a lot of those skills, that's that's going to be sizable force already, right? Yeah, yeah. So just to be clear, Russia can't do a general mobilization because it's not a Soviet mass mobilization army. This is not the Red Army. If it's not, if it's not immediate, obviously, obviously, anyone who's been watching this war for the last hundred days, this ain't the Red Army. Um, but what they can do is they can do a behind the scenes shadow mobilization, which is what they've been trying to do, just hiring up a lot of personnel, right? Trying to get more reservists in, then trying to use those to put them together with officers that are still available back in the units. The problem with doing that for them will be that they're in some respects cannibalizing the force. You know, the reason I say that is because if they use too many officers that are left in those formations, those are the officers they need to train conscripts, right, to train and equip the rest of the force and to be able to cycle it. So over could, time... Could they, bring, could they bring in retired officers back for training? I, I, I mean, I mean, yeah, but then things really start to degrade. Plus, keep in mind, um, once you deploy enough equipment, you got to ask, what are these people training on back in their bases too? So there's all these challenges, right? Like, what are they doing? Basic marksmanship training? Things like that. So you start getting issues... Uh, issues uh, of overall force degradation and, and the ability to uh, train up new conscripts and the like. I don't want to paint it in a categorical light. I just want to basically say that I do think that to some extent they're cannibalizing the, the force in order to try to build these reserve units. Um, the last part I'll say is it's not clear what numbers they're going to get off of that, but it is very true. Russia doesn't need hundreds of thousands of men. Okay. Not, not to rotate troops off the line. And, it's important for folks to appreciate that that between general mobilization, which is principally impossible, and doing nothing, they do have options to extend uh, their ability to sustain the war. What they don't have are, are really great options to launch new major offensives or to pursue any maximalist objectives. In fact, their ability to capture um, uh, even, even the Donbass, from my point of view, is very much in question. Although they have captured pretty much all of the Luhansk oblasts, right? Severodonetsk, really the last um, uh, city that's remaining. Um, the Donetsk oblast is, is still largely in Ukraine control, and, and the headquarters for GFO is in Kramatorsk, I believe. Um, Rob, yeah. sa same question to you. Uh, where do you think this is head heading towards? Yeah, so I mean, I, th I think I'm only, I would only make a low confidence prediction. Um, you know, the thing we've been talking about before is that because on both sides, a lot of the primary units have taken heavy casualties, and it, it, both sides now are relying much more heavily on mobilized units or reservist units or what have you, you know, those units are not well, as well trained. It's easier to use them to defend like a trench line. It's, it's, it's much more difficult for those kind of units to do offensive operations because it takes more training. And so that signals that it's more likely like an attritional type, you know, conflicts more likely over the, over the long term. If, we, if we're seeing more reliance on those kind of units. 
And you know, right now at Donbass, I think both sides, as Mike was saying, they're throwing in the permanent range units they have, the better units they have. Um, and it's going to be a question of which side has, has more kind of you know, permanent well-trained units at the end of this to do operations in the future. And, and as we were saying before, you know, in Kherson, there's been always talk about, you know, it might be a large Ukrainian offensive at some point. Well, you know, we've seen kind of limited stuff. We haven't seen a large counterattack. And again, you know, that comes back to saying, OK, does Ukraine have a large enough force that can, can do large scale, you know, combined arms operation that could actually penetrate defensive lines and, and actually exploit it? And it's, it's not clear they do. Right. Maybe they're committing that to Donbass. Maybe they're keeping that in reserve in case things get, get, get worse than Donbass. But it's not clear they have those forces either. And that means, you know, even even if these uh, you know, trenches or defensive positions are being held or maintained by you know, mobilized DNR, LNR guys or, or reservists or, you know, bars, contract soldiers, what, what have you, um, you know, they might be able to hold those areas. And, you know, one thing we're seeing in Kherson, Mykolaiv, that, that area in Zaporizhia, we're seeing a lot of artillery fighting. We're seeing, you know, some limited offenses, but it seems though a lot of times um, those offenses are being stopped by UAVs are picking them up and then they're getting hit by artillery on both sides. And so, it, you know, it signals that, that it, you know, the defense might be, short, might be more capable in those areas and offensive might, operations might be more difficult. So, you know, hard to make a prediction. Um, obviously, we, we have to kind of make predictions about what kind of NATO support Ukraine will get going forward. I think they have, you know, I think they have more of an advantage as, as this war continues, but it's not clear they have enough of an advantage. They can retake a, back a lot of territory. And ultimately, you know, we don't have great data. I think that's the big thing. You know, I, I, we don't have a great idea of Ukrainian losses. We don't have a, a, a perfect idea of Russian losses. And so we're trying to come up with which side is greater forceability. We, we have to make get estimates here. And it's really hard to make a strong prediction by you know, taking kind of poor data from multiple sources and trying to put it together into a model and say, OK, this is what it, what it tells us. Well, and one important thing to note here is we've talked about the shortages, but the Ukrainians did not have a large military to begin with before this war. And yes, while they've mobilized uh, their male population to territorial defense units, we're really not seeing a lot of those def- uh, territorial defense units in a fight. Many of them don't have much military training. And um, we actually just saw Zelensky fire the head of territorial defense units uh, uh just, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago as well. So to your point, uh, it's unclear how many trained personnel they have for a huge offensive. Uh, one, one thing that I found interesting in your article, maybe, Rob, you can comment on that. Many people have said that one of the biggest problems that the Russians face uh, structurally is that they don't have a good non-commissioned officer corps. Those are, of course, vital to the um, Western militaries, both in terms of continuity uh, of training and uh, sort of knowledge of warfighting. And uh, they're they're critical just in in infantry operations. Uh, The Russians don't really have that, but you kind of were were pointing out that maybe that's not as big of an issue for them as some of these other things you've talked about. Is that right? Yeah. So, you know, there there are two things we we kind of mentioned in the article. You know, there, there are a bunch of lessons, Lauren, that people are trying to, to, to take from the, the war. Already a bunch of articles coming about about this. Part of it is about, you know, why did Russia perform the way it did? What are the weaknesses? What can we learn from that? Um, I think some of those lessons are, are, are wrong, as some people are, there are, some people are pulling. And it's not because that they're, they're not sensible. A lot of these are sensible things to, to, to pull at, but it's not clear that the, the evidence supports this. So, you know, one case, um, people have been talking about tanks, whether or not they're obsolete. One of the things we get in our article is that, you know, a key element of tanks and what you use them is that you have to use them in combined arms. 
if you don't have enough infantry support tank units, tanks can be very vulnerable, especially in built-up areas, and they will get destroyed by anti-tank teams and so on. And, and be, they're, they're very vulnerable. It's a well-known thing since World War II before that. The tanks have to have enough infantry to support them. Otherwise, you know, you can, you can lose them quickly. And one of the things we, we talked in the article is that um, Russian tank regiments, they used to have one motorized rifle brigade, uh, battalion per regiment. And that would be enough to, you know, if, if a tank regiment is, is filling out two BDGs with tank, you, you didn't have enough infantry to kind of support both of them. Instead, what they've done as a, as a broader issue with, with not having infantrymen is they reduced the motorized rifle battalion to a motorized rifle company. And so they're you know, now take regiments was to have one company supporting it of like 70 soldiers, cruelly insufficient to, to support, you know, one battalion, let alone two battalions. So that's a huge issue for tanks. Um, the other one is NCOs. So, again, this is a completely sensible conclusion for people to draw. <clears throat> We've seen not the best kind of small unit leadership from the Russian side issues with with initiative, kind of you know centralized decision making. It's absolutely sensible to come to the conclusion that that's an issue with NCOs. And certainly Russia you know, doesn't have a strong NCO court. It's a newer kind of thing. They don't have a you know, really strong career kind of path for that for NCOs like you know, we do in the U.S. military. And so it's sensible to get, jump to that conclusion. The issue is that when you look at the personnel figures, the Russian military is actually very top heavy. And so because they, they change the strength of these units, right? So the motorized rifle battalions used to be the, the table organization all through their strength was 539 or 461. Well, they, they, they increased that to 345. And then what we're seeing is that in reality, many of the battalions before they deployed only had 220, 280 guys. And they, 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 reduced, their, so they reduced companies to like 75, 76 personnel, platoons to like 22, and squads to seven. And so when you start looking at the platoon level, if it's, if it's a platoon of 22, most of these platoons were only at maybe three quarters, two thirds strength. So a lot of them were 15 or 18 personnel. Well, a platoon still has a officer platoon commander, and and you know most units we saw you know didn't have an issue with a lack of officers. Um, they still have a staff NCO platoon sergeant, and they still have you know sergeants to lead those you know two of the squads. And so in that you know platoon of maybe 15, 16 guys, you still already have four officers or NCOs or staff NCOs. That's plenty of leadership. That's not the issue. The problem is they don't have enough uh, infantry privates, and so a lot of these units. Conscripts were filling out some of the some of the squads, and and of course once they once this war began, conscripts weren't supposed to go. Some units sent them, but you know we had to pull them back. Other units didn't get didn't didn't send them at all, and that meant you didn't have enough you know basic infantry contract privates to fight. And so they didn't have enough dismounts. They had plenty of leadership, and what it meant you know when you compare it to say the U.S. Marine Corps, um, the U.S. Marine Corps rifle squad is 13 Marines, and then and, and they're experimenting going to 15. Well, a lot of these Russian platoons had 15 soldiers. So basically what we're talking about is a Russian platoon led by an officer with NCOs is expected, it ha- has the same uh, leadership responsibility in the Marine Corps as what we, we, we give to a corporal or sergeant who leads that squad. And so we talk about, you know, is, is are NCOs the key capability issue for the Russian military? In my view, it's not the case because they have a lot of leaders. They just don't have enough privates. They don't have enough guys to be led by these NCOs. And so we're talking about, okay, how do we explain small unit leadership issues or other issues, well, it's probably an issue of officers or it's just a general lack of infantry in general and the way this kind of plan was used. And, and again, one, one of the big t- issues, too, we talk about is that almost all Russian units, all the infantry units they have, almost all of them have organic armored vehicles. So it's motorized rifle units, tank units, VDV, naval infantry, all of them are organic um, mechanized vehicles and motorized rifle vehicles. The problem is if you're going into an urban setting, 
you typically want to use dismount infantry because when you dismount, you want to have a company or battalion that has the entire leadership structure that can actually go and fight and move on their own. And re- when we're talking about these other units, like motorized rifle units or VDV units, when they go into towns and cities, some of the guys that stay behind in the vehicles, usually leadership members. So sometimes you're dismounting, you know, fire teams, but you're not necessarily dismounting cohesive squads. You're not dismounting cohesive platoons because some guys have to stay with the vehicles. All of that hurts uh, their effectiveness in urban terrain. And so one of the big you know, takeaways, at least my view, is that Russia lacks enough light infantry. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that they may draw from this is that the VDV in particular, they made significant reforms early 70s that mechanize the VDV and it based them around, uh, you know, light mechanized vehicles. I think this war proves that basically that was that reform doesn't make sense anymore. And so maybe it makes sense to have a handful of lightly mechanized battalions of VDV. I think it probably makes sense that the rest should be light infantry and should only have kind of trucks and support. Cause I think that that would, that would be much more effective to the Russian military. And basically I think this is one of the really weaknesses we talk about, you know, what, what has contributed to Russian military's failures in, in Ukraine, Aside from, you know, the Ukrainian military and Ukrainian resistance being very capable, aside from a very poor strategy, we talk about the Russian military weaknesses itself. You know, infantry is, is a big one, but it's personnel. They don't have personnel. And another one of these, I'll, I'll end on this, is that, you know, in terms of logistics, a, a problem for logistics as well is they didn't have enough contract drivers. So a lot of these units, they depended on conscripts to drive trucks, logistics trucks, to supply convoys. When the war began, right, they, those guys were not supposed to be deployed. And so they had a huge dearth in uh, privates who were supposed to be drivers, but who were who are uh, who signed and volunteered, who are allowed to be deployed. And in some of these cases, units had you know maybe only a quarter of the drivers were contract soldiers. And so again, because these units didn't have much warning, right? All these these issues that, that left these units not very particularly ready in a permanent readiness state, um, because they didn't have warning, they were really not able to execute this plan very effectively. And again, a lot of this comes back to personnel being one of the key weaknesses and one of the big contributing factors why the Russian military struggled in Ukraine. Mike, you got the last word. Okay. Um, I guess what I add to that is there was definitely cheating on the readiness in the Russian military. And while a lot of militaries do pad readiness figures, it was particularly problematic in Russia. And I think that they found out things about their own armed forces that they didn't know on day one. And that's part of the reason we didn't know that about the Russian military as well. And it's nothing like a large military operation to reveal rotten your armed forces you do not know about. Rest assured, this can happen to anyone. And one of the biggest things, you know, I always want to do when you look at a war like this is not take lessons just about the Russian military. But to take lessons for our own armed force, about force structure, about our own force design debates and understand that things like this, yeah, they can happen to us. OK, they can. And it's important that you think about them so that they don't. Uh, and one of the biggest reasons for that, and I just want to be clear, I really dislike the hand waving of the word corruption. Corruption does not explain differentiated outcomes in a lot of what's happening in this war. OK, corruption may affect maintenance, sustainment and things like that in the Russian military. A lot of what's taking place is not due to corruption. And so using corruption as a talismanic word as like a, a hand-waving causality to me is very unhelpful. The, for differentiated levels of, corruptions, of, of corruption often don't explain uh, outcomes and wars between states anyway, just to be frank on that. Um, and uh, when I look at a lot of what's taking place in the Russian military uh, were definitely uh, was definitely caused by... Um, the impulses of creating a partial mobilization structure, right? That difference between the authorized force strength, the actual force strength that they had on paper, the problems with getting more contract servicemen, 
and the pressures on the various, uh, I think, parts of the military to report a high readiness uh, figure, right, of BTGs that they had available, you know, while not actually having the soldiers necessarily on hand. And I think early on, that's also why you saw some formations in the Russian military cheat and send them conscripts. Part of that's what Rob said, because guess what? They needed conscripts to do logistics because, you know, uh, the, the truck drivers and whatnot were actual conscripts in the units. But part of that's because they were cheating. They were cheating on the readiness figures. And Mitri, guess who, guess who was cheating the most? Um, the Western Military District, from my point of view. This military actually is fairly uneven. We're talking about as one force. But if we look at the four different military districts, the problems are uneven between the four of them. And, and you'll have some surprising findings about... I mean, the Western Iraq. Military District is supposed to be the best, right? Target confronting NATO. Well, technically, the Southern Military District is the best. But yeah, but the units in the Western Military District that were supposed to be the best, like First Guards Tank Army, was one of the worst. And some of the units that weren't supposed to be the best were a lot better. Uh, um, Rob's welcome to chime, to chime in on this point if he's interested. But, uh, but I think that's one of the main takeaways. So one thing I do want to say is it's more complicated than it seems. There are different levels of performance depending on military district you look at, their forces, their readiness. They even deployed differently. Some units deployed as BTGs, and some military districts mixed it up as regiments and brigades. So it's very strange to unpack. And the last point is on Ukrainian forces. So there is a superficial appeal to have a takeaway that I think isn't a very useful takeaway, which is Ukrainian military is doing better because they're more like us. Well, many of the arguments about how they're more like us, for example, because they have an NCO Corps and the Russian military doesn't, they're not true. The Ukrainian NCO Corps is very aspirational and incipient. Some of these uh, arguments won't stand up to scrutiny. And so I think we actually need to have much better research into this war to figure out how Ukraine has done better, better than expected. And and while it's pleasing to have validating takes like, OK, they're just, they're just more like us. And that's why they're performing much better because of um, the huge impact of NATO training. My suspicion is that that a lot of the answers lie elsewhere. Well, and one thing that is coming across very clear is that. You know, you have a lot of deficiencies that uh, could have been compensated with a good plan, but uh, with a bad plan, even the best force is not going to be able to do a whole lot, right? If, if this was U.S. military having the plan for invading one of the largest countries in Europe, the second largest countries in Europe, uh, we wouldn't have done um, so well either, right? Um, so, go ahead. Major, I, the two brief things I've said is one. Uh, you know, we're, we're very much debating, I think, to what extent this is a bad army and a bad plan. And it is both. A good army can always compensate to an extent for a terrible plan or terrible political assumptions, right? And the Russian army certainly doesn't look like a good army. But but it will take time to figure out what part of this is terrible plan versus bad army. And the second phase of the world will be much more revealing for that debate. Another point I'll make is a bit provocative. Well, if you look on uh, and look at what NATO can do, um, NATO with the United States is one conversation. But when you talk about scaling military operations, logistics, and all these other things, and the ability to achieve air superiority, NATO without the United States is a very different conversation on that score. Absolutely. Well, I think this was another fantastic conversation with our rock star Russian analysts. Uh, and I, I might add, uh, analysts that have gotten so much right about this war so far. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Mike and Rob, for lending us your terrific expertise. And have a great evening, everyone. Hey, thanks for having me back. Thanks.